0: Welcome to the Common Knowledge Podcast. In today's podcast, you'll realize monsters are real. The Family International is one of the world's most notorious cults. In their peak, reaching over 80 countries, ruining lives along the way. There was sexual, child, and physical abuse happening in all their communes, but reportedly, Japan was one of the worst. In Japan, I know people directly affected by this cult. I see their struggles to cope with the atrocities done to them. But most people I know were second generation, people born into the cult. So for better understanding, I turned to a brave survivor, Sandy Ellis. Miss Ellis was a first generation member who joined the Family International in the 70s. So she was there for the rise and the fall.
1: So the Children of God cult is the, you could say, the brainchild of David Berg and Karen Zerby. They were the the people who were right at the very center of it in 1969 in the United States. It was a a religious group, it's a religious cult. And David Berg, you know, believed himself to be a prophet. The prophet predicted in the Bible. For the end of the world, for the end times. So he considered himself to be the end time prophet, and Karen Zerby was one of the young women he started sleeping with, and in 1969, 1970, and you know she ended up becoming his wife, and together they created this worldwide monstrosity of. You know, a lot of people call it a sex cult, but really it was a sacrificial cult, a sacrifice cult, where where all the people who joined, they sacrificed their lives, their, their, their marriages. You know, they gave all their money, they gave all their effort, they gave everything, even their children to the cult. And you know, it was a child sacrifice cult at heart, because even the children born into the cult were, they belonged to the cult. And David Berg determined everything about their lives and their parents let him do that.
0: So let's start here. Who is David Berg? David Berg was born February 18, 1919 to traveling evangelists. He was the youngest of three children. David Berg's mother, Virginia, the individual whom is credited in influencing him the most. David Berg spent his early years traveling with his parents, who pursued their evangelical mission with a passion. Berg would later write that he was sexually abused at the age of three by a Mexican babysitter and physically abused by a German nurse. In 1968, David Berg and his family founded an organization called Teens for Christ, but after getting a lot of pushback from local churches for being too radical, he would gather a group of 40 individuals and start his missionary work. It's easy now to picture David Berg as some kind of monster, but like in most stories, the wolf always appears in sheep clothing. David Berg was charming, charismatic, and had a commanding voice. Taking a somewhat traditional message of love, peace, and living simply, and slowly perverting him to his sick desires. Berg would go to schools to spread the word of God, but in reality, Berg knew this was the perfect place to recruit young, impressible members for his cult. Berg also took a rather aggressive approach to recruiting converts. Nightclubs, cafes, concerts, no venues were off limits in the name of converting somebody to Jesus. Berg's road show did so well, he decided to take it worldwide.
2: Well, praise the Lord, where shall I begin? God bless you all. We love you all. We miss you terribly. This has been one of the most difficult things I believe that I have had to do in my whole life as to leave the family group uh, back there, meaning all of you, and uh, uh, go almost alone to uh, a far country and another world almost.
0: Berg would piggyback off the hippie movement of the 60s and 70s. He would use a message of love and counterculture to attract potential members. Once again, Miss Sandy Ellis.
1: I'm originally from the UK. I'm from Liverpool. I came to Australia when I was seven. And when I was 15, this cult came to my school. They contacted my school and wow. because they were on a drive to recruit Catholics. I was in a Catholic girls' school and... You know, I had a bit of a history of feeling very disconnected, you know, from Australian culture and society, even though I was still young, I really felt like I didn't belong. So when these people came to the school with this sort of radical religious message, I loved it. Uh, you know, it was a message of rebellion. It was a message of, you know, come and join us. We're the real deal. Um, you can serve God and you can be free. You can be free of all the hypocrisy of the institutions, that you know, that teenagers sort of feel. And I, I met them again when I was 17. But you don't join culture, get recruited. There's a very active procedure in in once a person shows a little bit of interest they reel you in like a fisherman you know they reel
0: you in really what's the process of that
1: with the children of God there was a lot of emphasis on I love you because God loves you they present themselves as very loving very interested in you very concerned about you and they use a thing called love bombing where you feel very cared about in a, in a unique way, something you've never felt before.
0: Love bombing. Love bombing is the attempt to influence a person by demonstrating attention or affection. It can be used in different ways for either positive or negative purposes. Psychologists have identified love bombing as a possible part of a cycle of abuse and have a against it. Psychology professor Margaret Singer popularized awareness of the concept in her 1996 book, Cults in Our Miss. She writes, as soon as any interest is shown by recruits, they will be love-bombed by recruiters and other cult members. Love-bombing is a coordinated effort, usually under the direction of leadership, that involves long-term members flooding recruits and newer members with flattery, verbal seduction, affectionate, but usually non-sexual touching, and a lot of attention to their every remarks. Love-bombing, or the offer of instant companionship, is a deceptive ploy accounting for many successful recruitment drives.
1: Okay, so my experience was I visited the, the Children of God home. At, at that time, they were called colonies. And, you know, I was a young girl. I was 17. And they there were a couple of males who would have been maybe 19, 20, 21, a little bit older than me. And they would sit with me and look into my eyes and be very instantly, like, connected to me. And and they would say, you know, you're our sister. You know, we're a family. You know, God has brought you to us. And they would read me the literature that David Berg wrote, and they were called Mo Letters. And this literature, it was written in such a way that you felt very inspired by it, and you felt a real connection to what was being, you know, said, and also to the people who were who were sitting with you, giving you this message, you know. And for me, as a teenage girl, to have a handsome, you know, very cute, you know, sort of fellow sitting there, holding a guitar and singing to me, looking right into my eyes, I'm like, I've died and come to heaven.
0: You may find it easy to blame victims and say they should have seen through Berg's false teaching, but you'd be wrong. A true master manipulator knows if they come out with their true intentions, then you would disregard them. So they start off with practical messages and gradually throw in their warp teachings to indoctrinate you. They use propaganda, disinformation, and mind tricks to poison the mind of their flocks. One of Berg's greatest tools was called Mo Letters, short for Moses' letter. Moses David being one of Berg's many aliases. And these were proved to be one of Berg's and the cult's most valuable tools. It was in Moe Letters Berg promoted child pornography, prostitution, adultery, libel, kidnapping, larceny, obstruction of justice, and political meddling. It was in the Mo Letters David Berg told members that God was love and love was sex. So there should be no limits regards to age or relationship. In the next section, we look at how the Family International exploited their membership, primarily women and the children, for money. Communes, a group of people living together and sharing responsibilities. Communes are the preferred living situation for cults. It allows manipulators to keep their victims isolated and indoctrinated around the clock.
1: Yeah, so in one particular city, say the city of Melbourne, there were like six communes and children were, now this was in the 1980s, children were um, divided up into age groups. So all the toddlers were sort of cared for in one particular household. With the young ones, it would be in different parts of the household, but with the older ones, they were moved from the household where their parents lived to another household in another part of the city.
0: Let's be clear. This is another form of mental manipulation. It's impossible for you to have familiar and sibling bonds with a person you never grew up around. So by default, you put all your faith and trust in the cult. The
1: teaching was that these familial bonds, you know, these family You know, mother-child, parent-child, child-sibling relationships were an interference in God's work and that we were all one family, one wife. There's a teaching called one wife. We were all married to God and God's work and everything must be subservient to that, even the family unit. One of the worst things, and I don't think really enough has been spoken about this, but even babies were smacked if they threw food on the floor. Babies in high chairs. Yeah. Like a baby sits in a high chair from when they're five, six months old. If they throw a spoon or throw food on the floor, they, they would get smacked. It was, you know, considered, you know, that child is being naughty. They're being rebellious. You, you know, they have to be taught. And they, some babies did get smacked. Smacking was a really big thing, but not just one smack, like, you know, come here, smack. It was, you know, the child would be taken aside. They would be um, paddled, really, over and over and over and over until they stopped screaming and kicking. And when they just submit and the child, uh, yeah, it, the brutality that has been meted out, to the children born into this cult is it's criminal it is criminal how these children were treated and the effects of this are really really showing in their lives now in their 30s and in their 40s i can't even tell you there's such a high rate of suicide and it's ongoing Mm. Mm. So for children to be treated with such cruelty and such brutality, it really injures them. It really harms them emotionally and psychologically.
0: The Family International communes were monuments to misogyny, manipulation, and mental torture, often forcing women to carry an unfair share of the load. Women were separated from their children. They were not allowed to work traditional jobs but an operation this size needs funds to stay alive. So as you'll soon find out, the Family International had plans on how to exploit their children and their women. Once again, Miss Sandy Ellis.
1: This is also an economic financial empire. where All the money goes up the line. The literature that David Berg wrote was published and it was distributed. At first, we called them mo-letters or tracks. And later there were posters and video cassettes of children in the cult performing and singing, Um, and there were like music cassettes. So these were all things that the cult produced and sold out on the streets or gave away for donations. So that was one way. So that's all tax-free money. That is called preaching the gospel and sharing God's word. This is God's word according to David Berg. So that was one way that money came into the cult. Another one was provisioning where they would um, approach businesses and tell them, you know, we visit old people's homes. Well, they would have like these little PR things going on where they would go to some old people's homes and the children would sing and they were very lovely experiences. And they would take photos and make albums and go out and say, look, you know, we do this. This is our work. This is really our PR, but this is our work. This is what we do. And, you know, can you help us? You know, the house, we have a big house. It all needs recarpeting. So that was called provisioning.
0: This was a common thing in the Family International. They would have children regularly performing, singing, or begging for money. Because we all know it's harder to turn down a child. And for the women of the flock, they were sent down on special missions.
1: And there was another thing called flirty fishing. This is a really big story. So flirty fishing is when women in the cult would sleep with men outside of the cult to bring them in as disciples. Or as fish, who donated housing protection, black market visas. That was something that the flirty fishing in particular was very lucrative. And they also did escorting. They did escorting to raise money.
0: Flirty fishing, or some would call it religious prostitution. Flirty Fishing would turn out to be one of the Family International's great money makers. Bird would use sex as one of his greatest recruitment tools. There was wife sharing, group sex, and reports of sex with minors. Because as you remember, in the Family International, God was love, love was sex. So there shouldn't be any limits, regardless to age or relationship. Bird would often use sex in his sermon to indoctrinate his members.
2: Let's finish the subject that we started on tonight, shall we? we started discussing the flesh some people say we shouldn't glorify the flesh i don't know what they want us to do with it uh, maybe they want us to treat it like the hindus do and sit on nails and walk on coals of fire and torment it and abuse it but oh you shouldn't dress like you hippies do though that's exposing too much of the flesh and glorifying the flesh If you ask me, with some people, it's humbling the flesh. And I'll just tell you something, some of these people that have those sanctimonious, pious, self-righteous, hypocritical attitudes about nudity ought to try it sometime and see how proud it makes you. Nothing is hidden here. All things shall be revealed. Aren't there a few scriptures along that line? That day nothing shall be hidden, all things shall be revealed. Does this shock you? If it does, then you're too systematic. You're still bound by the old system, still bound. You're bound by the flesh and bound by convention and bound by the traditions of man and bound by the devil and bound by sinful attitudes. Now, we have to be cautious because all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. And uh, if eating of meat caused my brother to stumble, I'm eating no meat as long as the world lasts. That doesn't mean I'm never going to eat meat at all. I'm just not going to eat it where it's going to cause my brother to stumble, that's all. Well, aren't you glad you're free? Yeah!
0: The Family International was a religious Ponzi scheme. Where the people on top reaped all the rewards, where the people on the bottom suffered the most. Those on top of the pyramid had no time for those on the bottom. It will often exploit them to make themselves richer or gain more power
1: see i'm what you call first generation i'm a person who joined or who was recruited but the you know there were people who were born into it they're called second generation they're more outspoken about their experiences because they're like this isn't my fault i was born into this i uh, uh, me my siblings My friends, we were born into this. This was imposed upon us. Whereas the first generation, we have to say, I did this, we did this. This is what, we were the adults and this is what we inflicted on these innocent children. This is how we deceived the public. And there are precious few who will speak up and say that. So they lie, they write books and say, I was a Christian missionary. I served God in 12 countries for 25 years and this is my amazing book of all the miracles God did in my life. And they published them on Amazon.
0: It may shock you to know that the Family International is still active today with active outreach and selling books written by David Berg. If David Berg was the devil, the devil's wife is carrying on his work. When we come back we talk about Karen Zerbe. k the holy god
1: in the blood of we
0: brought rider is a rapper in Japan and second generation family member cult survivor. He wrote a song called Karen Zerbe must die. And full disclosure, he's the reason why I've taken an interest in this topic. Like Ms. Ellis explained, the second generation cult survivors had to deal with the mistakes forced upon them. They had no choice. But one thing is constant. Every second generation family international cult survivor I speak with have disdain and disgust for Karen Zerbe. Karen Zerby joined Teens for Christ in 1969. Trained as a sonographer, she became the personal secretary to David Berg. Berg later separated from his first wife, Jane, and Zerbe became his wife. Berg openly explained this to his followers via a message called, The Old Church and The New Church. She would be instrumental in the transformation of the Children of God cult. When David Berg's health started to decline in later years, Zerby began to take a leadership role within the group. Upon his death in October nineteen ninety four, she assumed full leadership of the cult and married her longtime partner, Stephen Douglas Kelly, commonly known to members as Peter Amsterdam or King Peter. Her whereabouts since the early seventies have always been a closely guarded secret, even from her immediate family. Her whereabouts today are still unknown.
1: People say she's in Mexico, but I don't know. I I, I don't know. But she changes her name, and she's had fake passports, and there are people who know where she is, you know, but no one will speak because there's this big conspiracy of silence. Even second generation, you know, people who are born into it and know that the culture's wrong and, you know, like a a dangerous thing, their parents are still involved and they know where Karen Zerby is. So, if these people were to, you know, expose Karen Zerby, it would also expose their parents. It's very complicated. But this is one of the things. Karen Zerby, she actually brought children, like the, a number of children, to her household, and David Berg molested them and ma- gave them rings and made them his wives. These were girls. 12-year-old girls, 12, 13-year-old girls. One of them was
0: his granddaughter. Karen Zerbe is a child abuser. She's responsible for despicable and unthinkable acts. She was Berg's number one enabler and his number one accomplice. Zerbe would often prep young girls for Berg and awfully readily sacrifice her own children to be sexually abused. Most notably, her son, Ricky Rodriguez. Ricky Rodriguez was the Spanish-American son of David Berg and Karen Zerbe. As a result of all the wife-sharing and unprotected sex, it was often hard to say who the biological fathers were in most situations. It's a term called Jesus Baby by some in the cult. During his childhood, Ricky was reportedly sexually abused by his parents and other members of the cult. He left the family in 1999, but struggled to adjust to life outside the cult. His spiral continued, and he sought revenge for his abuse. On January 7, 2005, he recorded a video saying he needed to take retribution for the abuse in the family, including on his own mother. The next day, Rodriguez invited Angela Smith, one of his reported abusers, to his home for dinner, where he stabbed her to death before committing suicide.
1: Karen Zerby knew her son Ricky wanted to get in touch with her. He wanted to speak to her. Now he was planning to kill her. Karen Zerby, she sent her friend. That is sending a lamb to the slaughter because she wouldn't go visit her son because she was felt threatened or felt scared, felt worried. But she sent a woman on her own. And that woman was murdered by Ricky, because she wouldn't say where Karen Zerby was. And then Ricky killed himself. But the thing is, Karen Zerby actually sacrificed. She wouldn't go. Well, so if it was too scary for her, too dangerous for her, it was also too dangerous for her friend. But she sent her friend. And out of loyalty, her friend went. Karen Zerby sent a woman, a helpless woman. She wouldn't go. But she sent someone else to go just to check it out.
0: And that woman was murdered. With such a history of child and sexual abuse, you may be wondering how this organization is still able to survive. Well, first, under the direction of Karen Zerby, the Family International set up their communes under stewardships. Stewardships are common in the business world it allows owners to separate themselves from management. That means colony leaders were solely responsible for the actions of each commune. That way, if anything did go wrong, Berg and top leadership could never be blamed. David Berg's job was to sit and dictate prophecies after prophecies of repeatedly failed doomsday dates and spiritual notes and reap the benefits from his devoted flocks who would do anything for him. Next, there were also failures in the justice system and very little legal recourse. After Berg's death in 1994, a slew of international court cases arrived set to bury the Family International. But it always seemed as the judges, like the Honorable Lord Justice Alan Ward in 1995, changed their minds and let them off easy at the last minute. Lastly, rebranding. The Family International basically rebranded himself as an internet business with limited outreach However, when I went to their website, I did see books published by David Burke for sale.
1: They all, they put so much time and effort and money into, into their security.
0: In our next section, how to escape a cult, Ms. Sandy Ellis tells her story. Leaving the cult is never an easy situation. People have devoted most of their lives to the upkeep of the communes and know little of the outside world. They have relationships and marriages within the coat. And in most cases, there's always one partner that doesn't want to go. Miss Sandy Ellis tells her story about how she escaped the cult and brought the Family International down in Australia.
1: I, I actually, we've been in India for six years. We, we came back to Australia and I, I was like, I'm finished. I can't do this anymore. I want out, you know, but my husband, my problem was my husband never wanted to leave. I wanted to leave and I would be in crisis and at regular periods. Like I'm finished. I don't want to do this. I'm out. I've got to, you know, leave. But he would never leave. The leadership would say, sure, you can leave, but your children stay. And there were so many children who were abandoned by parents who left or who, 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 whose other parents sort of smuggled them away from the one who wanted to leave and went to another country. And, you know, there were so many families that have been torn apart when one of them, when one of the parents wants to leave. And, you know, that had already happened in my life. You know, I, I was married twice in the cult. And in the first instance, my husband wanted to leave, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. I, I had a, a one-year-old and I was pregnant. I was 20. One of the things is you're told if you leave, God will judge you. You're a backslider. You're turning your back on God. And he will punish you through your children. So I'm like, I can't leave. I can't leave. What about my child? God, like something will happen to her. So there was all this fear, but I ended up remaining in the cult. My husband left. He never saw his children again for years and years. Once I left, I did take them to America to meet their father. They were teenage girls. But when I actually managed to leave was... We had come back to Australia, myself, my second husband, and and our five children. I conceived twins in Australia. At that point, I was sort of out of the group, and my husband was still in it. We lived in a house by ourselves. He was seeing a lot of them. But once I was pregnant with my twins, I was so sick. But that pregnancy and the delivery of those twins was very, very, very stressful. And I really was in the process of having a breakdown. So they were my children, number six and seven. After, when they were born, I was given morphine at the hospital and it gave me a manic episode, like a hypermanic episode, but was undiagnosed. And I just, it made me so angry. I, I, I was just so angry. And it was that anger. I fought with everyone. I I just, You know, I I stood up for myself and I stood up for my children in a way I'd never done before, you know, because I would complain to my husband about, you know, this is hard, that's hard, I don't get enough sleep, you know, Um, it's like, you know, these two, they're over in their household. When I see them and they come back on a Sunday, all she does is cry. You know, we need to get out. Like, I, I can't do this. He would report me.
0: When you report, what would happen at the report?
1: In trouble. If you get if If leadership is not happy with you and you get called before leadership, you are in trouble. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was supposed to look after children. That was one of my jobs, you know, I was a teacher of young children. I uh, There were some days I'd just cry the whole day and the kids would just be mulling around me and just, you know, like I'd just sit on the bed and cry the whole day. I was in the throes of a breakdown. And this one particular time, you know, I complained and I got called. It's called, they call it being called before leadership. I got called before leadership. Right. I went downstairs to the you know leader's office. I go in. This is about eight o'clock in the morning. I'd been up all night with babies and and was very sleep deprived, you know, for months of this. My husband, the leader of the household, a male, and the leader of the area, another male, three men, all who no doubt had great sleep that night. I know my husband did. He he slept like a baby and these three men were all telling me you're you're always complaining you've got to change your attitude you know we're hearing too many complaints about you if you don't get the victory if you don't stop this you know you're gonna have to leave the family I'm like what I want to leave the family I want to leave I don't want to stay and that was, that was the day I left. And usually a person's like, no, 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 I'm sorry. Please forgive me. God help me. And you repent and you, you know, they pray over you and they do exorcisms and you just like, you know, all get rebrainwashed, and, you know, I can do this. I can do this. But this particular day, I'm like, I knew this was my moment. I'm like, I want to leave. I want to leave. And they didn't expect that. They didn't expect it. So the leader, he said to me, okay, what well, we'll do, you will take your babies, your twins, and your three-year-old and go and stay in the house of these other sort of, they were associate members of the cult. You go there, you read the word, which is like all the teachings of David Byrd to reindoctrinate you. You stay there. And, you know, you get the victory and we will come and talk to you and we'll see what we're going to do. And I'm like, I'll leave. I'll take my babies and I'll take my eldest and I'll be back for the rest. Mm. And I'm like, what? I did it. And, yeah, I just stood up for myself. That was the day I left. But the big problem was my husband wouldn't leave. And that was always my difficulty. He would not leave, but at least I had those three. Two of them were in a different household. So my thinking at that time was, I'll just, I'll just get out and then I will help my, I'll bring my husband and my children out. But there was a big fight over that because the leader said to him, the children, you know, like that's the teaching, but the kids stay. But I just, I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't give up, and I hammered, and, you know, I would ring. I want my kids. Bring me my kids. If you don't bring me my kids, I will call the
0: police. Miss Ellis finally made her wear out the coat, but the fight was on to keep her kids. She would later find out she wasn't the only one going through this problem.
1: In the end, the leader said, look, you, to my husband, they said, you take the rest of the kids, go with her, set her up in a house, like rent a house, you know, get some secondhand furniture and then have her sign paperwork to give you half of the children and you come back, right? So he was on that mission. So I was just happy, you know, like, oh, good, you know, you'll come, you'll bring the children. And But then the fight was on because he was putting me under pressure to sign this piece of paper, which was horrendous, the pressure that that put us under, he eventually stayed and it's too long a story, but what happened, I was just content to live our lives, put the children in a school, he had some job selling insurance, I did the cooking, the housework, you know, take the kids to the park, we were just doing that, very happy with that for about eight months and then I got visitors and it was A woman who'd been in the cult that we were friendly with, she was out with her children and her husband, and she brought another ex-member along to my house. Now, he had left the cult, but his wife and all his kids were still in it. And I knew him and I knew his family really well. He was devastated. And she brought him to my house and, and he's like, I don't know where they are. Uh, and I'm like, he sat there, he cried, he was crying over his family, and I'm like, you know what, they did this to me, you know, they put us through hell, and, and I got so fired up, I'm like, God damn it, you know, they. I won't let them do this to you. So I was just really on a mission then to help him find his kids, and we did. We found out where his wife was and his kids, we went there, And she wouldn't let him see the children. There were all these cult leaders there. There were two men and wouldn't let her see the children. So this fellow, I'll call him Daniel, that was his cult name, he, you know, like he's kicking at the fence and like, I want to see my kids and people are walking past. And I thought... This looks like he is harassing this poor woman. That's not the story. Like it looks bad if someone were to report this. So I went next door and I said, Look, I'm going to call the police because this is going pear-shaped. The police turned up and they thought exactly what passes by thought. Oh, this is a man. It's a it's a marriage problem. They said they said, look, bring the kids out, let them see the kids, you two meaning the husband and wife, you need to go to the family law courts and get this sorted. And they walked away. And as they're leaving, I'm like, they don't see. They don't see the truth of what's going on. And I just called out, I said, but these children don't go to school. And this is, and the policeman stopped and he turned around. He said, what do you mean they don't go to school? I said, They don't go to school, this is a cult, and they don't go to school. And he took out his notebook and started writing it down. And that was the beginning of what became a massive investigation into the cult here in Australia.
2: Wow. It's been
1: almost 30 years since that happened. Yeah, well, the fact that I said these kids don't go to school. Now here in Australia, you can homeschool, but you know, they weren't even getting a proper education. They were just getting indoctrination by the leaders um, about the Mo letters. You know, they were just being indoctrinated, and and that was one of the reasons my older daughters were really unraveling and becoming very unstuck because they were being taught. You know, you have to be revolutionary soldiers for Jesus. You, you are the junior end-time teens, and, you know, you have to sacrifice, and you're not a child anymore. They would, like, once you're 12, no more reading, writing, and arithmetic or spelling. It's just full-on indoctrination and
0: work. Sandy Ellis never gave up, and she fought the Family International at every turn to get her children back. And eventually, she did. But she didn't stop there. She continued to fight the Family International and worked hard to get her kids acclimated to life outside the cult. And she also dedicated her life to activism. Right now, she's currently doing activism in Australia for the indigenous people. While doing this interview, one of Miss Ella's children were in the background and they had this to say.
1: And you know what, you're right. I hope you don't mind I was in the background listening. I've heard all this before. I'm one of, I'm her fourth eldest. And you're right, she's she's my hero. She, the stuff that she's done, she's taken ownership for. Very, very rare for a human to do that. I don't know anyone else who's done that. She's a, she's a real she, she's my hero. She's a, and she is to all of her children as well. And that's the difference that a lot of other first generation relationship that I have with their children is different. We had a lot of help from our extended family. My mom has done so well in integrating us back into society, getting us educated. We've got issues with trauma, but she's done amazingly. And she's in the vast minority of people who joined who have done that. And you're right. You hit the head right on the nail. She's an amazing woman.
0: Looking in the mirror could be hard to do. A lot of us are afraid to admit our mistakes. even less of us are willing to put in the work to correct our mistakes. We're all flawed. But Miss Sandy Ellis, you are a true hero. When we come back, I'll wrap up this Common Knowledge podcast.